We're going to read now from God's Word together. So if you have a church Bible, we're reading from Mark um, chapter 13. It's quite a long uh, reading today. We're reading the whole of the chapter. And Jesus and his disciples um, have been in the temple in Jerusalem. So Mark 13, starting at verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're, they're all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the fields go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not happen take place in winter, because those days will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world, until now and never will be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, Do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything in advance. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, 
from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that hour and day, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. To be with you all, and it is such a privilege, isn't it, to study God's word, the living word of God together again. So we're in Mark chapter 13, the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel. And it's about the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Jesus. The destruction of the temple and the second coming of Jesus. A very famous passage of scripture. And it's often being called by theologians the Olivet Discourse. Like the teaching of Jesus from the Mount of Olives on the destruction of the temple and his second coming. And we can read a version of the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13, but also in Matthew's Gospel chapter 24 and 25, and also Luke's Gospel chapter 21. But before we dive into God's Word, can I ask you a question? What causes you to say, wow, look at that? Have you said that this week? Have you said, whoa, look at that? Maybe it's a nice big house, or a car, a flash car. That happens quite a lot driving through Berkshire. I found it yesterday. Oh, where did I go yesterday? Some Pang something. What's it called? Has anyone been there? First time I've ever been there yesterday. Quite a posh place, isn't it? I drove past a Bentley dealer, a Maserati dealer, and a Austin Martin dealer, all next to each other. And there were some big houses there. And I was turning to Hannah, wow, look at those cars. Wow, look at that house. Maybe it's the same with you. Maybe houses and cars might make you think, wow, look at that. But it could be technology, the latest iPhone 55 or whatever it is, isn't it? Whatever it is. Is it the latest gadget? Or maybe it's sport, you see a sportsman or a sports lady do something and you think, wow, look at that. Or it could be something on TV. Wow, did you see that last night? Did you see Britain's Got Talent last night? Did you see celebrity dancing last night? What's it? It's not even called that, is it? Strictly, did you see Strictly come dancing last night or something, isn't it? 
Or it could be a bit of celebrity gossip. Do you find that when you walk past the newspaper, you might see an embarrassing picture of a celebrity or a politician and a sensational headline? It makes you stop. Oh, what's that? Wow, look at that. Look what's happened to so-and-so. Be honest. What causes you to stop and think, look at that? But here's a question. What causes Jesus to stop and say, wow, look at that? What causes Jesus to say, look at that? Well, we're told in Mark chapter 12, this is 41 to 44, aren't we? The end of Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, look at that, pretty much, doesn't he? What do we read there? Mark 12, 41 to 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins with only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, just kind of look at that, truly, I tell you, this poor woman has put into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So Jesus is like, wow, look at that. Look at that poor widow. Look how she trusts in the Lord. Look how she depends on the Lord. Look at her worshipping God with everything that she has. Everything she's got to live on. Jesus goes, look at that. When people put their faith and their trust and their dependency on him, Jesus goes, look at that, when people worship him sacrificially. But what causes the disciples to say, wow, look at that? What caused the disciples to say, look at that? Well, we're told, aren't we, in chapter 13, verse 1. And Mark chapter 13, verse 1 is followed instantly by Mark chapter 12, verse 44, isn't it? So Mark 12, 44 is followed by chapter 13, verse 1, which is interesting and significant, I think. What do we read in Mark chapter 13, verse 1? So Jesus has just told his disciples, wow, look at that. Look at this poor widow. Look how she trusts the Lord. Look how she's worshipping sacrificially. And then the next moment, what do we get? As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones. (laughs) What magnificent buildings. You kind of almost half expect Jesus to say, guys, are you being serious? (laughs) I just told you what gets me excited. I get excited when people trust me and love me and depend on me. I get excited when people worship the Lord sacrificially. Are you seriously expecting me to get excited by some big stones (laughs) and a big building? Jesus showed them what he was excited about. But Jesus' response was just as humbling, wasn't it? What do we read there in verse 2, Mark chapter 13, verse 2? Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And that's what we should remind ourselves when we get excited by temporary and worldly things. Do you think so? 
So the next time I say, wow, look at that house. Wow, look at that flash car. I should remind myself, if Jesus returned right now, it'll all be burned up. It's all going up in smoke, isn't it? The latest gadget, all going up in smoke. All the expensive jewellery and fashion items, all the big houses in Berkshire, all the flash cars in Berkshire, all going up in smoke. means nothing. And if Jesus didn't return soon, what's going to happen to those things eventually? Those big houses, they're all going to crumble into dust eventually, aren't they? Those flash cars, they're all going to rust, aren't they, eventually? But the temple, in all fairness, was more than just a big building. The temple was more than just a big building. The temple was at the center of worship and national identity for ancient Israel. Now, there's a saying, you can tell what a city's God is by looking at its skyline. I think that's quite profound. You can tell what a city's God is by looking at its skyline. Now, did you know that up until the mid-1960s, the skyline of London would have been dominated by crosses on top of sort of church spires and on top of cathedrals like St. Paul's Cathedral, the London skyline would have been dominated by crosses. But now, what's the London skyline dominated by? Buildings of finance, isn't it? Buildings of business and maybe objects and buildings of pleasure. You can tell what London's God is today, can't you? It's money and pleasure. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah? What is London's God today? Money and pleasure. But for a period of about a thousand years, in ancient Israel, the skyline would have been dominated by the temple. And we don't know exactly what it looked like, but it might have looked something like this, do you think? In all fairness, that's quite an impressive building, isn't it? If you did see that, you would say... I got a bit of sympathy with the disciples. They would have said, wow, <laughs> look at this. Jesus is like, it's all going up in smoke. <laughs> and the temple was called the house of God. It was a significant building. It was an important building. It was called the house of God. It was a building that represented God living among his people. But sadly, many members of ancient Israel were more obsessed with the building than knowing the presence of the living God. Obsessed with the building, there was just a shadow of Jesus. Obsessed with the building that was basically just a signpost pointing to Jesus. And we're going to learn lots more about that when we start studying Hebrews. Yeah, Hebrews in October, isn't it? We'll see a lot about that, the temple. A shadow of the gospel, isn't it? Pointing to Jesus. That was so sad, wasn't it, that ancient Israel were obsessed by a shadow and a signpost. Could you imagine if I only spoke to Hannah's shadow? (laughs) I saw Hannah's shadow and said, 
Oh, you are so beautiful. I love you so much. You'd be thinking, what is the matter with you? There's your wife. Speak to your wife, isn't it? That's what you feel like telling ancient Israel, isn't it? If you could get a time machine and go back. Look, there is the one you should be loving and trusting. That's the one you should be obsessed about. Not this building. That's just a shadow, just a signpost. Um, I don't know if um, your children have to do home learning. It's not, I don't know why they don't just call it homework, home learning. I think they're trying to make it more fun or something, isn't it? Well, one of Nathan's home learning tasks to do, it's kind of like a grid, and you just get to pick whatever you want to do. One of the boxes is, go on a family trip to London. Say, so, oh, and you're going to pay, are you? <laughs> I feel like asking this. So we're going to have to go on a trip. Well, I we don't think we have to, but we're going to try and go on a trip to London before Christmas at some point. And Nathan will get 10 points for doing that. But could you imagine if I took Nathan just to a signpost of London? There we are, London, 40 miles. Just look at it and enjoy it. I said, oh, I don't want to look at the signpost. I want to go to the actual place, isn't it? So the temple, as nice as it was, it's just a signpost pointing to Jesus. But it seems... Many in ancient Israel had an unhealthy obsession with the temple. They weren't obsessed with Jesus, whom the temple was pointing to. Can I stop for a minute and ask you, what are you obsessed by? You don't have to shout it out, obviously, but think about it. Honestly, what are you obsessed about? What do you think about the moment you wake? Apparently, most people just look at their phone the moment they wake, don't they? Any text messages, any emails? Have I had any likes on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or whatever? Any comments? Isn't it? We're obsessed by ourselves, aren't we? Or maybe or whatever, isn't it? What are you obsessed by? It might be money. It might be worldly pleasure. As Christians, we ought to be, if you are a Christian here this morning... You ought to be obsessed by Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, he's worth it. Being obsessed by Jesus is worth it. Because that is where joy and peace is found, isn't it? Only in Jesus Christ. I know someone called David Robertson, a preacher. He's written a book called Magnificent Obsession, Why Jesus is Great. And he wrote that book because he said, There aren't any books out there about Jesus. Just telling you how amazing Jesus is. There's loads of books on different theological topics, different theological issues, but no really good short book just about Jesus. Magnificent obsession, why Jesus is great. Great book to read. But in Mark chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus is saying the temple's expiry date is coming up. The temple's expiry date is coming up. And I wonder how long a gap there was between verse 2 and verse 3. Do you wonder that? What do we read there in Mark chapter 13? How long was the gap between verse 2 and verse 3? Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Let's start reading from verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Uh, Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone here 
will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. I don't know about you, but it seems as if nothing then is said until they get to the Mount of Olives. There may have been an hour of silence. Do you remember what that building looked like? Jesus says, see this? That's probably the sort of view they might have had from the Mount of Olives. See this? Not one stone will be left on top of another. And then, maybe there's like a stunned and shocked silence for an hour. (gasps) What? Isn't it? But then, eventually, Peter, James, John and Andrew, they sort of pluck up the courage, don't they, to ask Jesus the question, when is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? What do we read in verse 4? Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And then, from verses 5 to 23, I believe Jesus is answering the question there. In Mark 13, verses 5, all the way through to verse 23, Jesus is answering their question. He's telling them when the temple is going to be destroyed. And what signs are going to happen before it is destroyed? And then in verses sort of 24 onwards, I believe that's when Jesus is talking about his second coming. But we'll look at that next week. So this morning, we're just mainly focusing on well, verses 30, 14 to 23, really. But we know, don't we, from history that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, 40 years exactly after Jesus gave this discourse on the Mount of Olives. Isn't that significant? 40 years exactly, a generation. That's quite significant, I think. And when we read the book of Acts and the New Testament letters, and when we read history, we see that all the signs mentioned in verses 5 to 23 happened before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But then verse 10 seems to be a tricky verse, doesn't it? If we do believe if verses 5 to 23 is all about the destruction of the temple. What about verse 10? What's that about? And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. It's like, what? The gospel is going to be preached to all nations before the temple is destroyed. And we could turn around and say, that hasn't even happened today, isn't it? Was the gospel preached to all nations before AD 70? Well, nations, all nations, doesn't mean every single country on planet Earth as we know it today. So I believe that verse 10, Mark chapter 13, verse 10, is a prophecy of what happened on the very first day of Pentecost after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and everything that happened after that very first day of Pentecost. Because what do we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 5? This is in AD 30, so 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Acts chapter 2, verse 5 says this. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So were there like Fijian Jews there or something? Or sort of Red Indian Jews from North America or something? 
Very unlikely, isn't it? But we know what happens next, don't we? What happens next? 3,000 of them come to faith in Jesus Christ. So probably not every single nation on planet Earth, as we understand the nations today, heard the gospel before AD 70. But the gospel did go global. The church, or Israel, did become international, didn't it, before AD 70. Because what do we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 8? The Apostle Paul writing to the local church in Rome in about AD 57. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. And then what did the Apostle Paul write to the local church at Colossae in maybe about uh, AD 63? The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, the Apostle Paul is saying. And then in verse 23, he says this, This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. So according to the New Testament, the gospel had been proclaimed to all nations before AD 70. So by AD 70, the gospel had been proclaimed to all the known world at the time. It had gone out to the nations, hadn't it? But again, we're mainly focusing on verses 14 uh, to 23 this morning. So let's have a look at verses 14 to 19. Mark chapter 13, verses 14 to 19. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, that, that always used to make me smile that it sort of rhymes. It sounds like a rap or something, doesn't it? The abomination that causes desolation. Yeah. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the house stop go down to enter the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Now, I don't think Jesus is talking about the second coming here, in verses 14 to 19, because this is a very specific instruction to those living in Judea, living in Jerusalem, isn't it? And it's a very specific prophecy about what will happen in Judea, what will happen in Jerusalem. But what is this abomination that causes desolation? Now, there's lots of, no, I won't say weird and wonderful, there's lots of weird um, interpretations as to what the abomination that causes desolation is. It's not Barack Obama, and it's not the Pope. Sorry if you hold very strongly onto that. Sorry to burst your bubble. But I strongly believe it's not Barack Obama or the Pope or something like that. But what is it? The abomination that causes desolation. Well, just think about the word first, abomination. Where does that word come from? Well, it's a word that the Old Testament prophets used to use to describe idolatry. 
So idolatry is an abomination, the Bible says. And then desolation, sort of destruction, isn't it? It's like an army brings about destruction. So someone who destroys. So it sounds like an idol that leads to destruction. Maybe an idolatrous army or something. But what about Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16? I think that helps us to understand what the abomination that causes desolation is. Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand then. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus is quoting from the book of Daniel. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, could you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Daniel and chapter 9 and chapter 11 and chapter 12. I don't think we've got time this morning to go into Daniel chapter 9, 11 and 12, so I might give you sort of a quick sort of overview. Daniel was prophesying 500 years before the death of Jesus, before the crucifixion and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. 500 years before Jesus. And Daniel gives this sort of prophecy of what's going to happen for the next 500 to 600 years. So in the book of Daniel, you get an overview of history. So he's looking at the sort of world superpowers. So at the time, it was uh, Babylon. So Daniel's like, so Babylon is the world superpower now. That's going to be replaced by uh, the Persian Empire, and that's going to be replaced by the Greek Empire, and that's going to be replaced by the Roman Empire. And that is exactly what happened, wasn't it? Exactly what happened. But then in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says that the Messiah has to come and die for other people, and then these armies will desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. So in Mark chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus is directly answering the disciples' question. Jesus is basically telling the disciples, remember what Daniel wrote? You know, he said that the temple would be destroyed after the Messiah has died for other people. And then abominations will be put up in the temple by these invading armies. And then Luke, in Luke's gospel, that also helps us to know that the abomination that causes desolation are Roman armies. What do we read there in Luke 21, verses 20 to 22? When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Uh, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country uh, not enter the city For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written, especially in the book of Daniel. But then the question comes back, what exactly was this abomination? What exactly was this idol that was standing in the holy place, standing in the temple? Well, apparently the Roman armies used to carry these sort of poles with them called uh, ensigns. They might have looked something like this. These sort of poles, sort of ensigns. And 
on sort of one of the end signs, there would have been these sort of images. I don't know if you can see it there. These images, but there and but there. That's an image of the emperor, the Roman emperor, Caesar. And uh, the, the Romans, they would worship these images of the emperor, Caesar. And they would even offer sacrifices to these images. Isn't that interesting? And the records tell us that the Romans put up these images in the temple area and offered sacrifices to them. So then the Christians living in Jerusalem, when they saw that, they thought, oh, that's an abomination. Idols in the holy place, in the temple. And then they legged it. The Christians let we know what's coming next. So they ran for their lives, basically. Apparently, they settled in a town called Pella, the other side of the Jordan River, sort of modern-day Jordan, you could say. But then, what about um, verse 19? What do we read there? Mark chapter 4, verse 19. Those days, uh, those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And you might be thinking, was it really that bad, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70? Well, it was, it's called, the, uh, the Jewish historian um, uh, Josephus, um, he wrote a book called The Jewish War. So he was kind of like a first century Jewish historian. And this is how he described it, the Jewish War. This started in, apparently, AD 66. And then he was completely destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. This is what he says. Um, it is impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquity. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly, that neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. Now, we're all very familiar with the Holocaust, which is awful, isn't it? We're remembering sort of 80 years now, aren't we? But this was bad. This was bad in AD 66 to AD 70. Um, Apparently, the Romans tortured and crucified the Jews until they ran out of ground and crosses to do it. And there was a, a severe famine. There was starvation. And there was even reports of cannibalism. So parents having to eat their own children. Uh, Apparently, during the Jewish war, uh, 1.1 million Jews were killed and 100,000 children were carted off into slavery. It was really, really bad when you read all the stuff. Some of the stuff can't even be repeated publicly, I think. It's so bad. But then, what about verses 20 to 23, then? If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Now, what's the elect? Well, the elect is quite simply just another name for Christians. The elect. Another name for Christians or the church. The elect from every nation, isn't it? God's chosen people. That's what the elect are, isn't it? We don't save ourselves, do we? We're the elect. That's what God's people are. But what does verse 20 mean when it says, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, but for the sake of the church, but for the sake of Christians whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. What does that mean? Well, the Jews could have held out for years, apparently, but God did not allow it. So it was a relatively short war, wasn't it? Five years, is it? AD 66 to AD 70. Quite a short war, really. But uh, if the Jews would have held out for many years, for like decades or something, this war would have spread beyond Judea, wouldn't it? And what would have happened to the Christians who escaped just beyond the Jordan, who sort of settled there? They would have been killed as well. But God was saying, no, this is only going to happen for a short time, just five years. This judgment is coming on Jerusalem, just the city of Jerusalem, just coming to Judea. It's coming there, isn't it? I'm going to keep my church alive, settled there. But then we might be thinking, well, what on earth does this mean to me today? (laughs) Something that was prophesied 2,000 years ago and something that happened 2,000 years ago. This just seems like a history lecture or something. What's this got to do with me today? How is this going to help me on a Monday morning? Well, I think we learned two lessons from Mark chapter 13, verses 14 to 23. The first lesson we learn is that Jesus is the true prophet. He is the true prophet. What Jesus spoke of in AD 30 happened in AD 70 exactly as he said. Because what is the test of a prophet, according to Deuteronomy? That what they say actually happens, isn't it? But there's another test. Because sometimes you get some false prophets who get things right about the future. They say something's going to happen, and it does happen. But the other test for a true prophet is, does what they're saying match up with the Bible? And Jesus is the perfect prophet because he says, turn in your Bibles to Daniel. He wasn't just coming up with his own stuff. Jesus was constantly referring back to his very own scriptures, isn't he? He's constantly t- uh, referring to Moses and the prophets. And then the second lesson that we can take from this is we see who the true people of God are. We see who the elect really are. Who are the elect? The elect are people who listen to Jesus and do what he says. So Jesus is very clear here. He says, look, when you see abominations being set up in the temple, you must have been looking them in the eye. Make sure you do this. Run for your life. Remember this now. And then 40 years later, 40 years later, the Christians living in Jerusalem. Oh, do you remember what Jesus said? Let's leg it. Let's take his words seriously. God's elect heard Jesus 
They remembered the words of Jesus and did what he said. So here's a question this morning. Are you one of God's elect? And then the question, well, how can I know if I am one of God's elect? Well, you'll hear the words of Jesus, you'll remember the words of Jesus, and you'll put them into practice. But if we hear the words of Jesus, and we forget his words, or refuse to put his words into practice, then you can't be one of God's elect. People who refuse to do what Jesus says, oh, dude, I'm not sure if you're, if you're saved, if you're just going to deliberately ignore Jesus. We must take seriously the commands of Jesus. But you might be thinking, well, this week I've ignored Jesus. Am I not one of the elect? I didn't do what Jesus said this week. I, I knew what I should have done. But I completely ignored Jesus. Well, there's hope. You can listen to Jesus this morning, and you can do what Jesus is saying for you to do this morning. What does Jesus command us to do? Repent and believe, isn't it? Even this morning we can say, Jesus, I stuffed up this week. I repent. I I want to stop doing that. I'm going to turn away from that. I'm going to stop doing that. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for that sin of disobedience I committed this week. He died for all of our sins, isn't it? Someone asked me this week, um, uh, doing a Bible study, so so blasphemy, can that sin be forgiven? Yes, isn't it? Yes. What All sin, isn't it? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We can make sure of our election and our calling. How? Listening to Jesus, remembering the words of Jesus, and doing what he says.